Welcome to episode number 32 of Corner of Hunter and George, Peterborough's Art and Culture Podcast. Well, if I feel like the need to be mentioning something to do with Doug Ford, I know that I have to take a step back. So this is not a current news program. Never will be, not meant to be. I want to go underneath and celebrate our arts and culture community, among other things. This is not so much the arts, but more, you know, an election is a cultural event of those who participated. But we recently had that, a little more than a week ago. Seems like really old news now. And I thought, who better to talk about it with than one of the founders of Peterborough Currents, which I highly recommend you subscribe to. I'm a subscriber and proud of it. Will Pearson. Him along with uh, Aisha Barmania founded it in 2017. Well, he met in 2017 and they've been hard at it ever since. They've given us a lot of great investigative reporting and investigative reporters as well. So one will men- mention in this uh, podcast, Brett Throop. And we're going to discuss, uh, you know, this is never going to sound like 24-hour news to you. I hope not. If I have to spend my days watching something like, say, Fox 24 hours over and over and over, CBC News World over and over, I'll know I'm getting near to the end. I'm not there. But we are going to discuss the results somewhat. And But we're going to more importantly go into the main issues, which I think we're able to nail down to several ones, that are the big things facing our municipal government coming ahead in the next four years. So I hope you enjoy. And here's my interview with Will Pearson. And don't forget, you can find Corner of Hunter and George on all your main streaming devices, Spotify, Apple, SoundCloud, trying to even expand to more. And also, any five... Am I supposed to say this? I feel like this is scripted. But anyway, any five-star rating or comments, feel free. Okay, so here's my interview with Will Pearson. Hey, Tim, how's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah, it's been uh, quite nice weather for November. Yeah, it's been a nice few days. Yes, I was. Uh, I was kind of wondering how you sort of uh, someone like you, uh, like independent journalists, must you know, uh, kind of uh, it's kind of a love hate relationship. But you've kind of probably feel a bit of dependence over the years on Twitter. But I'm just wondering, uh, sort of, how you feel in this new evolved Elon Musk Twitter with this eight dollar uh, whatever it is blue mark fee or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm. Uh... I'm not sure that any, like all of the social media companies are owned by pretty odious uh, companies. I don't mm-hmm. know. Like, 
I haven't seen a big change on Twitter yet. Maybe we will. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, you always, I mean, it's always, you always kind of make some compromises when you use these platforms. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I don't know. I guess, yeah, I'm kind of in a position. I kind of will see how it goes, but uh, I don't know. If it gets a little absurd. Yes. I just may have to go one day from this, but yeah. But um, well, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't want this interview to sound like CNN or something like that. Uh, so yeah. it's not mainly about the election results, which is kind of old news. Now we're talking eight days later, mm-hmm. but I still think, I guess it would be helpful to go over some, results that came out of that so i guess the first thing i was coming to mind is uh, i think peterborough had uh, a voter turnout of 40 decimal one five percent which is down i think about eight percent from what we did four years ago wow. but i i bet it's above average for a lot of ontario though because if you look at other spots in ontario i was looking at like toronto was 29 mm-hmm. waterloo was 27 Kitchener was 20, London was 25, and so on. So, uh, yeah, I think general, I think Peterborough do, does have a little bit more of an engaged citizenry than other like cities at size. So, mm-hmm. it's depressing to see turnout drop that much. But um, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that it was still a little bit higher than other other municipalities. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, with Jeff Leo winning nearly 50% of the vote. So I kind of have uh, two reasons that may be the case. I kind of have two theories. Maybe I'm wrong on both. But anyway, my first is, well, it may be just because he's a familiar face. I kind of remember back in last winter or the spring where it sort of was a consideration he was running. And I remember hearing a lot of a lot of them older people talking like that. That caught them kind of at least interested, at least as someone they know, you know, they they know everything about him and it kind of that that had them interested um, or it may have been just because for maybe um, fair or unfair reasons. He just he was not a member of the past council. Yeah. And that may have helped him as well. I don't know. Do you feel do you have any theories on why it ended up being a pretty clear victory for him? Yeah, I I honestly I had, I had no idea who was going to win the election. Mm-hmm. Um at least like who was going to win the mayor's race. Um, and so I wasn't surprised because I, I really didn't know what to expect. Um, but I, I think, I don't know, I think both the reasons that you suggested are kind of how I'm thinking about it too. I think for people that accept the narrative that like council has been, you know, bickering and in fighting for the past four years and that's what's been stalling progress. And mm-hmm. like, I don't really know if that's true or not. Um, but I know that like, that kind of seems to be the prevailing narrative. And so I think if that's something that you believe, then like an outsider who, you know, projects an image of like balanced centrism is probably the antidote that you're going to go for. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're kind of hitting the mark there. Yeah, no, I think you've got something there with that centrism. He kind of brought to it. Um, And, I mean, I'm interpreting the results in council. You can tell me if I'm wrong, because I'm not as familiar with some of these uh, councillors as you might be, the ones who were elected. But I'm interpreting it kind of as being a center right kind of result. There there are some exceptions like town ward. But uh, if you throw in people like people like Andrew Beamer, 
I think it's, you say David Hackey or David Hack, but anyway, um, and Leslie Parnell and others. It's kind of mostly that kind of, kind of more center right. Don't want taxes to increase. Don't want to really make too many, uh, investments, that sort of thing. Yep. That's kind of how I, how I feel about it too. There's a couple of mm-hmm. councils that are less like reliably. Like some some councils, I have a hard time predicting how they're mm-hmm. going to go any any issue. Uh, but the ones you've named, yeah, center right um, mm-hmm. is where they lean, and I think that's where the balance of power is going to going to lie for the next four years. Mm-hmm. And I also just have to ask you what you and maybe you weren't following this at all because it's not you know it's it's close by, but it's not Peterborough. But uh, what happened in Cavan Monaghan with both like Daryl Bennett and right, yeah. uh, losing the mayoral race and Dean Del Mastro losing the deputy mayor race. Uh, I won't get into any suspicious reasons why they were running in the first place, but uh, like I was kind of surprised. Yes. That's enough. That's someone else's story that I hope they pick up. But uh, um, I uh, like you have any uh, comments on how they both lost and it wasn't really that close. I I have no idea. I I wasn't following that campaign too closely. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. Okay. Um, hey, but I'm I'm interested in like so I noticed that I, I, what, what was his name? Aldo Adrioli was running in the north end of Peterborough. That's right. Um, yeah. And he's an so I, I'll be careful here because I'm not exactly sure what the relationship is. But I emailed him at one point to ask him a question, and his email is like at Del Mastro Motors. So I'm assuming he's an employee of Del Mastro Motors or something. And then one of Dean Del Mastro's like. I don't know what the relation is, but it was brother or cousin or something was running in North Kawartha. I don't know what the result of that one was. I don't know, I'm just kind of yeah. curious uh, how the whole Del Mastro universe fared in this universe, in this election. Because uh, okay. lost in Aldo, Adrioli lost, and I don't know what happened in North Kawartha. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. I, that's, uh, yeah, that's worth looking at. But yeah, I'm not sure how that happened. Um Okay, well, if we were to say what you feel are like the main issues coming ahead for Peterborough, I, I've, I've I've come up with my own. But if you think I'm missing something, yes, please say. I guess I was getting at our homelessness, yeah, uh, which is closely, of course, tied to housing, affordable housing, our drug toxicity pandemic, mm-hmm. and transit, which, of course, you've spoken a lot about lately. Is there any? I, there are other issues, but do you feel like those are the main issues, or is any other key issue you think I'm missing that's upcoming for Peterborough? I think you hit on the issues that people that are like front of mind for citizens right now, and like what people are like most keen to see change on. Um, I think that like just sort of like urban design and city building and like visions for how to develop the city is also a really big one. Um, I don't think it's any more of an issue this time around than last time or than it will be four years from now. But I think that that's like, it's just another uh, realm where city councils have a lot of power. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's something that I'm, I'm keen to watch play out as well. Right. And of course, some of that urban design is tied to like uh, a lot of our environmental issues and yeah, the provincial's government's plan of this, uh, like, uh, 1.5 million houses in 10 years or so, which I know Peterborough's not technically part of, but 
it, we might see that see that change. Um, I'm just wondering if you think of yourself as, as like uh, like your publication Peterborough Currents likes to like follow a lot of things that of our municipality, but sometimes um, you must it must feel like people working that that they're kind of sometimes in a hopeless position which has kind of been the case maybe since mike harris like you're given all the responsibilities you're not allowed a deficit and it was the case before but especially under ford as he's kind of exemplified this week but other things he's done too where it seems like municipal zoning in the future will not matter you can be overrun by anything you've done by the province a strong mayor idea which i know isn't impeatable yet but still who knows if it will be in the future, this sort of thing. Yeah, um, it must be. I think it's probably one of the hardest parts of being a city councillor is uh, you don't have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. I think citizens think that you have a lot more power than you do have. Um, and I think that the provincial and federal governments are like so hard to engage with and kind of feel so distant that citizens kind of like immediately look to municipal government to sort of like air their grievances or look for solutions with because like they are more accessible like you can call city councillors and they'll generally pick up the phone um which is not you know not true of your mp or your mpp um often and so yeah i think there's a lot there's a lot of expectations put on municipal governments that i think municipal governments can't always deliver on um but that's not to say that they don't have power and i think that one of the problems is that that sort of sometimes can become an excuse that kind of obscures the places where municipalities can act and can like do have uh, policy levers at their at their disposal. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think I think that um, discrepancy between sort of responsibility and power, especially, becomes clear on on, on the issue of housing and homelessness. Um, mm-hmm. Because over the past sort of 20 years or so, the responsibilities for those files have been devolved to municipalities more and more. And like no resources have have come along with those increased responsibilities. Um, yeah, so I don't know. it must be frustrating. Yeah, um, not to go on too much of a tangent off topic, but uh, you kind of have seen that with this Emergency Act inquiry thing, like whether some of it was for other reasons as well, but like just this relationship between the different levels of government, you know, who is going to be responsible for the protesters, Ottawa's police, the OPP, the RCMP, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't been following that too closely, so I I don't really know, but uh, yeah, I can see why that was. I think that's just one example, but yeah, you often see where just governments aren't, don't really, you know, there's some things where it's not clear who has responsibility for what sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so the main issue, at least if you go by what the politicians have said and what I've read on your, um, your profiles of each candidate, which are what Peterborough Currents wrote was when it comes to homelessness, the main issue seems to be, are we going to be providing a 24 hour shelter or not? And, uh, some like Leal are in favor of like a low barrier, 24 hour shelter and others are not. Um, and, um, I think both of us would agree that while of shelter, while necessary, especially for upcoming months, is not an end goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there anything like, do you feel like, again, we're just talking about the limited power of municipalities. Do you think this is sort of the, 
issue that they kind of can only focus on when it comes to our homelessness? Or is there things they're really kind of missing on when they discuss this in council? So, like what you've seen the last four years too, based on that. Yeah. Two things. I, I think firstly, it's important to note that like we do have a 24 seven shelter of like presently. Yeah. Um, like an overflow shelter presently and it is funded until March 31st. So one question is going to be, okay, is the, is the council going to fund that further into the summer? Um, or the spring and summer. But then secondly, even that is not enough. Uh, there are people for whom the, the shelter system currently is like inaccessible. Um, and, you know, last year that problem was solved, was addressed by one city's stopgap uh, program at, at the Bridge Youth Center, which was like a, I think it was like ran for like six, maybe eight hours in the coldest hours of, of the night just to like give people a place to be warm so they didn't freeze to death. Um, and that, that, that service was so, the demand for that service was so high that they actually had to cycle people in and out of the space mm-hmm. all night long. So that some people were, okay, you got like two hours to come get warm, but then you have to go stand outside and get cold again while someone else comes in to get warm. Mm-hmm. And that's how many people needed that service. And that's the service that we currently don't have lined up for this winter. Um, and so that's sort of like the, uh, the immediate uh, question. I think when the council comes in in November will be, like, what's the plan for people for whom the, the current shelter system is not accessible? Because these are folks who are living outside right now, and that will be deadly within within six weeks. Yeah, that kind of, uh, yeah, the, I, I remember hearing about that last winter, and that sounds like almost like, I mean, I know the bridge place is doing all it could, and also we had COVID regulations for some of that, too. But yeah. Uh, it sounds like just like a real cruel absurdity, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so I, I know like I, I believe Piero Kearns has written about this, but there is the issue with the old Trinity United Church. Right. Yeah. Uh, which I'm not sure if I totally am grasping all the issues involved with that, but it's, it was meant to be a drop in center or it's meant to be. I mean, I should say, but I, I remember and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I also was like hearing about. Diane Terrian's claim that the city was withholding money from it as well. I don't know. There's something I'm missing there, but. So the, the long-term vision for Trinity is like a community hub where various like social service agencies can operate um, and sort of like co-locate. Um, that's sort of like the long-term vision, but yeah, there, there, were, there was a proposal on the table to use it this winter to be sort of what the stopgap was last winter. Um, a sort of mm-hmm. low barrier space where people can come out of the cold. Um, and yeah, there was some confusion around whether the city had the authority to spend, like to grant the, fu- I think it was going to cost about $200,000 to run that. One city was willing to, to, to run it. Um, and then the city, after some discussions, the city said, Oh, I, we actually don't have the authority to spend that money presently because, um, because we're in an election period. Um, right. and so the council kind of tried to, you know, in that special meeting that Dianterian called, tried mm-hmm. to sort of work out a solution, but we're basically kind of told by staff that it wasn't possible. The money, it wasn't possible to spend the money. And that I think it's the city's procurement bylaw allows spending. And like, I'm hesitant to even get into all this like bureaucratic policy talk because, you know, it, 
it's really about like whether we want to save people's lives or not. And I, I, it's, it's frustrating to like have the discussion, like veer into all of this, like weird arcane policy talk the way it did at this city council meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so the the city has the authority to spend money in election periods if it's deemed an emergency. Uh, But then like the, yeah, the city's lawyer at this council meeting basically like said, I've been like reading up for the past couple of days, doing some research on like, the definition of emergency in the legal literature and how the word emergency has been taken up in like case law. And my interpretation is that this does not meet the threshold of an emergency. And so we can't spend the money. Uh, and so it's, yeah, this one like a legal interpretation coming from the city solicitor that was, um, yeah, undergirding staff's position that they don't, they can't spend the money. I think we have to look at like why this plan came like we can't was only being discussed during an election, the election when like winter's been coming. Winter comes every year. It was it, it's been clear all year that this was going to be an issue. Um, and I think <laughs> I don't know. I, I think you know responsibility has to fl- fly at both both city staff and city council for not developing a plan sooner. Right. And that's one thing. It might be just because where I'm, I'm not a long time resident of Peterborough. I've lived in a few different spots and where I've lived before. I just I didn't really pay attention too much to too many council meetings. So maybe this is just common in Ontario. But it just uh I was kind of surprised how much because it's come up in other issues as well, where either the mayor or some councillor's idea seems to have been stopped by like these city bureaucrats. I don't know. Is this a common thing in Ontario where like uh, they seem to like override what maybe some councillors want to want to do or want to accomplish? I don't I, I don't know if it's a common thing in Ontario. It's certainly mm-hmm. a narrative that a lot of people use to understand sort of what's happening on city council in the last four years. Um, I think there's some truth to it. I don't I don't I, I can't really say. I mean, I would need like concrete examples of like, OK, here's something that I that, you know, a councillor tried to accomplish or that city council together tried to accomplish. And like, here are the barriers that staff threw up along the way. Um, Well, to put it more precisely, I'm honestly now forgetting the precise issues, but I just know that there's been other things where they brought um, some city bureaucrats or lawyers into the meetings and they basically... You know, they're not telling them what to do, but the, a lot of councillors' votes have gone on what they, they've advised kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And this is some, and this is like something that really frustrates me about city mm-hmm. council um, mm-hmm. is their – so I, I, I think it's important for city councillors to have, like, productive re- working relationships with city staff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good thing because I think, you know, there's a lot of shared – probably a lot of shared goals between those groups of people that they can like work together pursuing. But like, I think at the end of the day, a city councillor's role is to um, hold staff accountable on behalf of citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that something I see a little too often on city council is a certain, like a deference to staff and a deference to the arguments that staff make and an unwillingness or sometimes like a, Sometimes it's also like a lack of resources, so an un, an unwillingness or an inability to pursue, you know, independent research and consulting citizens to sort of push back on what staff say. Um, I think about in the summer uh, when they were writing about this issue of the, the overflow shelter funding, um, 
someone said, I think someone made an accusation on, on social media about Councillor Keith Riel saying, oh, Keith Riel never comes to the overflow shelter, never talks to the people that use the overflow shelter, so he doesn't know what it's like down here. Mm-hmm. And I think the examiner reached out to, like, published that, but reached out to Keith mm-hmm. Riel to get his response, and Keith Riel's response was, I don't need to go. City staff write reports and tell me what's going on at the overflow shelter. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, this 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 encapsulated this problem for me. Um, I think that city staff have a lot of like expertise and a lot of like talent and a lot of um, enthusiasm, but like at the end of the day, they have their own jobs to protect. They want to look like they're doing a good job, and I don't blame them for that. And I think that motivates part of like the information that they send towards council is like trying to make the city look good and trying to make themselves look good. And I don't know, it just frustrates me when councillors can't kind of see past that. Um, yeah. So I wish that, yeah, city councillors were a little bit more bold in holding staff to account. And like sometimes to the point of like, there can be conflict between staff and, and councillors and that can sometimes actually be a fruitful thing that I think some councillors are sometimes afraid of. Yes. I just sometimes like worries me that like, it's not much of a functioning democracy. If it seems like people who are really making, if not the decisions, at least all the recommendations that are just kind of taken and embraced by some, no matter what are by people who are unelected, of course, that's kind of. Yeah. But at the same time, like people that are, elected are generally um you know they come from um backgrounds that aren't like rooted in municipal policy making and urban planning and you know housing policy they're often Mm -hmm. just very often they're like you know business people or concerned citizens and Mm -hmm. on the staff side you have decades of like bureaucratic expertise and bureaucratic experience that is valuable um and so I, you know, I, I don't want to discount like the, the, um, the, the value of unelected people, um, because often they have expertise that elected people don't have. But there's got to be a balance that that gets struck. Yes, yes, and hopefully, well, yeah, hopefully we might see some less frustration that way. But uh, with housing, yeah, hopeful, but we'll see. yeah. No, I think one of your greatest uh, pieces of work you've done, at least your paper, was uh, your work you did on the way back on uh, PHC, Peterborough Housing Corporation. Yeah. And like, what is, I don't, just to maybe remind me, what is the uh, situation currently with Peterborough Housing Corporation? Because you've told me, I think in your past articles, you've mentioned how in early 2022, the city took it over and there was that conflict of them replacing the board members they had with council members and they're uh-huh. yeah. faced to sue. They were sued by one of them. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm just curious what the current situation is with Peterborough housing corporation. Sure. So let's go back a bit further. First. <laughs> Peterborough housing corporation is uh, sort of, um, to be honest, I'm not sure what the legal relationship is, but they're, they're a nonprofit mm-hmm. uh, corporation and the city is the sole shareholder of the nonprofit corporation. So there's a little bit of arm's length, um, activity that the corporation does, but at the end of the day, the city um, does control it. And it was created in around 2000 when this, when the province devolved responsibility for social housing to municipalities. And so it inherited about 1500 units of rent geared to income housing 
um, when that devolution and that downloading happened. And over the past 20 years, they kind of stewarded that portfolio of housing, but also developed about 200 more units of affordable housing. So like housing that's not rent geared to income, but is a little less than market rate. And yeah, about, I think it was like five years ago, they started developing a plan to redevelop a bunch of their properties to build like more than a thousand new units um, of affordable housing, not, not geared to income housing, but affordable housing. Um, and I think it kind of was ignored for a few years. Like I had been hearing about this plan for a long time before it um, kind of became an issue in 2021. Um, but in 2021 winter, uh, I think at like Dianterian's um, direction, the city kind of decided to finally do something with this proposal and they took control of Peterborough housing basically and took control of the projects because I think there's, you know, there were some financial reasons and some legal reasons why they did that. But I think there was also like concerns about how Peterborough Housing Corporation had been run. I don't know all the details on that because I've found the city to not be very forthcoming about it. Um, so yeah, the city kind of booted everyone off of the board of PHC, replaced them with city councillors. Um, the former CEO of Peterborough Housing Corporation um, says she was dismissed. The city says mm-hmm. she resigned. And that's sort of the uh, where the, the lawsuit comes in. She's suing the city uh, over what she, what she says was constructive dismissal. Um, so the city has kind of taken over this development project. Um, you know, it's already delayed. Like it's already moving a lot slower than the consultants said it could go when they first kind of approved this plan in February or maybe March 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, I just find it's frustrating to see. This is like, this is a really important project. I think it's probably the, when you think of zone, real solutions to homelessness in Peterborough, I don't think there's a project in Peterborough that's more important than this development. Um, because for all the, you know, you can, for all the different you know challenges around homelessness, I think the main one is just that we really don't have housing units to, to, to put people in right now, um, the public. Um, yeah, and so we just need to build more of them. And it's frustrating to see, you know, it's frustrating to see the city, like the city's housing corporation dealing with this lawsuit when they've got this really important development that they have to get right. And I'm already, I, I'm concerned that it's not that the units they built won't, there won't be as many of them as was originally envisioned and that they won't be as affordable as was originally envisioned. Um, and I'm, con- I'm concerned that the timelines that it's not gonna work out in favor of the city because there's that time deadlines on them. The, there would be federal money that sort of helps to build this. And that money comes with like really tight deadlines. I think all the projects have to be done by 2027 and maybe 2029. Mm. And I don't think the city's going to kind of achieve that, that deadline. So that's frustrating to see. And am I correct in saying that there's been cases reported before of some of this affordable housing being sold off privately and things like yeah, that? Yeah. So the, the PHC owns about 50 units of geared income housing in the south end of town. Mm-hmm. And about a lot, it was, this was this decision was made before even the previous council 
or the current council, however you look at it. Um, it was mm-hmm. like six years ago, I think. Um, in order to finance the building of that new um, development down on Bonacord. So there's like 26 units of affordable housing that have been completed, like the old uh, Fleming campus. Okay, right. It's been, there's a new building of 26 units of housing that like people are living in it now. And then there's a another taller building right beside it. That's I think about 80 units. Um, that looks like it's almost done to me when I walk by. Um, and so they sold these houses to fund, to partly finance, that project mm-hmm. um, and but like you know people were living in those houses and three or four years ago when that decision was made phc said we're not going to kick anyone out of their houses in order to sell these houses we're going to wait until people leave of their own volition and then when that happens we'll sell the houses um and we have you know peter occurrence reported i think earlier this year that mm-hmm. no people that live in those houses are receiving letters from phc saying you got to move we're selling your house um, which is, you know, really distressing to hear. Um, yeah. And those, yeah. I think it's really important to kind of, there's a little bit of an eggshell thing going on. Uh, what's that game when you nutshells, when you hide the ball? It's a shell game. That There's a little yeah. bit of a shell game going on, uh, and you have to keep track of, like, what units are replacing which units because those houses that are being sold are geared to income houses, and the units in the buildings that, Supposedly, they find that they did finance are not geared to income. They're affordable, so like they're they're much less affordable. So it is an erosion of of the geared to income having stock in Peterborough that is really concerning. Right. No, I I could see what you're saying about it, like like it being even though it's way behind on schedule and had all these other problems, it is like uh, pretty much Peterborough's only way to be attaining any sort of um, improvement, at least to our homelessness situation, because you tell me if I'm wrong, you would definitely know this better than me, but traditionally I feel like Peterborough's depended on a lot of like just private landlords, often like in people's homes kind of thing, people owning a second lot of property or people from out of town, like the GTA or Brampton or wherever owning a lot of houses and yeah. like that, that it's basically dependent on their interests and, uh, um, yeah, so the city yeah. keeps like a, if, if we're thinking, you know, specifically about homelessness and mm-hmm. not just a wider problem of, you know, unaffordable, unaffordability for everyone, right. uh, the city like keeps a list of everyone that, um, is home, that is homeless in the city and like wants to engage with the city, um, to sort of find help because that's not everyone does want to engage with the city. But among the people that do, um, the city has this list and it tries to take people from the list and connect them with housing and the housing, the city has access to some like publicly or non like publicly held housing or nonprofit held housing for that purpose, but nowhere near enough. And so most of the housing that the city can place people in is, is um, private, like, you know, private landlords that, you know, I, I think, you know, you've got to um, uh, appreciate the fact that these landlords are not easy to house someone who's, who's been homeless. Um, and so, you know, these landlords are saying, okay, like, you, um, they strike deals with the city. Like, yeah, you can place people from the by name list in, in these units. Um, and that's just problematic because the city can't control, like, whether those are actually, like, good places to live. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we don't have to actually give too much applause to these landlords because a lot of these houses are actually not very nice places to live. So, you know, it's not a great scene. 
Um, and just because these people are very difficult to house without supports and the supports mm-hmm. are often not enough and not available, um, it can just create, you know, damage can be done to the units and, and there can be conflict with landlords and landlords just say, you know, I can rent this for a lot of money to on the private market to someone that doesn't give me as much grief. Um, and that's the decision that they make a lot. And so the city, and this is why I said earlier that the, one of the main problems the city has is that there just aren't literal units of housing that the city can connect people to. And that's why we need to build some. Build some and make sure that it stays under public ownership, right? Or, or nonprofit ownership. So that, you know, it's a, it's a place to live and it's not a vehicle for making money. Um, we need publicly held housing that, that, you know, our public governments own or at least control so that our government can say, can reserve that housing for people who are homeless. Yes. And I think uh, speaking from my own knowledge, like in Ontario, that used to happen, at least in some spots when the municipal governments had more power back like in their 1960s or 70s. Um, but, uh, and do you feel like densification should be something they should be looking at? Uh, cause there is a lot, I mean, if nothing else in Peterborough, there is a lot of empty space, uh, even at our downtown, there's a lot of buildings that are just don't have much in them sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that that's something that, uh, I'm interested to see how boldly city council pursues, um, that I don't. Honestly, I don't really have a good understanding of what kind of power municipal councils have over what kind of housing gets developed where. Mm-hmm. As, as we've been talking about, the province has a lot of power over that too. So I, I don't really know um, what kind of, yeah, what municipalities can do to encourage that kind of development. But yeah, I agree. We need lots more tall buildings full of apartments. Right. Um and yeah, I, I think when we talk, when I talk about the other issue I was mentioning, uh, drug toxicity, yeah. um, well, a lot of tragedies involved in that, but like what if, when Leal is talking about like, not just he wants, he is supporting continuing CTS, but more about what I'm talking about. He, he wants to see an addiction treatment center built, but isn't that somewhat dependent on the province or the federal government? And also like for both for funding and approval. And also if you're going to build one, it doesn't necessarily mean just people from this area using it. They could be people from Lindsay or from Thunder Bay, Belleville or Thunder Bay or wherever. Yeah. Yeah. So that's right. It's yeah, totally dependent on, on probably provincial funding um, to build. Well, maybe not to build, but certainly to operate because it would be healthcare, healthcare spending. Um, And yeah, the way that sort of provincially, operated detox facilities work is um, there's a, there's a provin- province-wide wait list. And so when a spot opens up anywhere in the province, the person uh, either at the top of the wait list or whoever sort of has the highest need at that moment um, has can, can take that spot no matter where they are. So yeah, it wouldn't, you know, I mean, more detox facilities in the province of Ontario would probably be a good thing, but I think it's a little disingenuous to suggest that it's like the solution for Peterborough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also like, I don't know, a lot of people are really excited about the detox center idea. I don't think it's a bad idea. I think, um, for a lot of people's like journeys away from, from drug use, like 
for people who whose journeys include detox, it's like it's it's one small part of of that journey, right? Um, and I think to focus on that as the only solution and not to focus on, okay, when you come out of that detox facility, um, what kinds of community supports do you have? First of all, do you have housing? Because if mm-hmm. you come out of that detox facility without housing, I don't know, I, I don't think there's much chance of you not starting to use again. Um, and so first of all, are you coming out of that facility with housing? Are you coming out of that facility with social supports and community supports and health supports? Um, and I think that like that side of it often doesn't get discussed as much. I think probably because like it's a the de- detox facility idea seems is like a very seems pretty politically salient. I think that it like the getting one built would be a political win for I mean, especially our MPP. Um and it's not to say it's not important, but it's only one small piece of the puzzle. Okay. Yes. And I've, I've had people who know a lot about this issue too, who I think would agree with that, that premise, like, uh, um, that, you know, t- yeah, drug detox, detox is a good idea in itself, but it, yeah, it's not a one. There's also a lot, of, there's a lot of sketchy drug treatment providers, right? Addiction treatment providers. Oh yes. Uh, we yes. Also got asked, like, okay, who's running this thing? Is it like an evidence-led, health-centered treatment facility, or is it someone trying to make a lot of money? Yeah, no, I've heard of some uh, terrible stories of ones like run in the U.S. that uh, yeah. almost sounded a bit like a cult-like kind of status thing, and yeah, were kind of a horrifying experience for anyone going through that. Um, well, here's a specific question, because I don't know if I totally understand what this is, and I know you'll know the answer. When you're asking them, and I think almost all of them were in favor of this, the 484 rent geared to income supply housing units by 2029, which sounds like a long way away. Um, maybe you've already discussed it, and I just didn't realize it, but what exactly is that? That, right. that I think most elected members support. Yeah, and we were we asked we asked that question knowing that everyone would say yes. That sounds great. Okay, uh, it's, it's more about sort of having people on the record saying that they're committed, that they're going to help with this. Oh, I see. Yeah. And then so that we can hold them to it. Um, and so that number is coming from a couple of years ago in the city's ten-year housing and homelessness plan. Um, they did like a, a a projection of of like a needs assessment for housing, like how many new housing, affordable housing units that we're going to need over the next 10 years to, to meet everyone's needs. And the, the 484 units of, of supportive gift income housing is just like one little piece of the puzzle. Um, but, you know, the most important piece when you're thinking about homelessness, because that's the kind of housing that um, is going to be accessible and, and, and for someone who's been homeless. Um, yeah, and so I, I saw a lot of people responding to that on social media being like, we need a hell of a lot more than 484 units, and they're right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, that number doesn't include sort of like a, I think it was like, we also need a, th- a thousand, you know, just sort of like slightly below market units built uh, over those 10 years. Um, and maybe even more rent geared to income units that don't come with supports, right? And so it's only one piece of the puzzle. Um Though I'm, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea that we also need more than 484 of those two. Right, right. Yeah, everyone said that they're committed to to working toward that goal, so that's something that we can hold people to. 
Yeah, no, that was clever. That's something uh, I'll be then watching what other what, what some of them do there. Uh, now, on yeah, October- I can just sort of follow up just quickly because this is something that annoyed me about the housing and homelessness debate. When sure. we asked that question, um, uh, I think Henry Clark was like, yeah, I'm committed to that. We're going to get it accomplished with this PHC redevelopment. Uh, and I think Jeff Leo mentioned the PHC redevelopment in his answer to this question too. Um, and those redevelopments are not going to, they don't propose any new goods income housing and they don't propose any sort of new funding for housing supports either. So it's it's really not a solution for that that problem. Yeah, I, yes, I, I will definitely, probably with Henry Clark, but he doesn't matter so much at the moment. But Jeff Leo, I think what, um, and I'll bring this up in one other topic, coming up but i think a lot of uh these sort of issues like uh supply of housing and that i think he really is just thinking of sort of a market-like solution kind of thing. yeah um so the issue you i think you've been most passionate about lately going on your tweets i've seen lately and what you was published october 24th in peter occurrence by um brett through um, I had an article called the Uberfic- Uberfication of Peterborough Transit. Mm-hmm. So I think that like uh, the idea of that is that Peterborough Transit's thinking of moving to a more on-demand service. Yep. Uh, which I've heard actually in some smaller places like Belleville. I don't know. I remember watching something not too long ago. I think it was on CBC where that was portrayed as being a success. Um, but that being said, um, we've had a few years of cut routes, changed routes, reduction of routes. Uh, there's this never dying issue of going back to the hub and loop system, yeah. which for someone again who moved here, I was surprised that was here because there's like where I've lived in the 905, there's no place I know of that has that still. Yeah. They may have once, but like I, I don't, you know, like in Oshawa, for example, that's not even thought of. Yeah. And so, um, like, I don't know, I guess, first of all, my first thing is like, uh, do you sort of worry about this Uberification of our Peterborough transit? Yeah. So, yeah. And that story, as you said, was written by a, a reporter, Brett Troop. And he's mm-hmm. uh, honestly, he's following the story closer than me. So I mm-hmm. encourage people to check out his, his writing on our website. Um, yeah. I mean I, I mean, I share the sort of openness that you kind of expressed around the idea of the on-demand transit. Like, I'm willing to give it a try and see if it's a solution that works for people. Um, I'm concerned, like I'm concerned about just all the cut routes. Like if you, if you, if you, so we're speaking on, what is, is this November 2nd? Yeah. Yep. So if you wanted to get to Trent University by bus today, um, you know, good luck because 50 of the bus trips, either to or from Trent were canceled today, today alone, mm-hmm. 50. Um, yeah. And so it's just like, there's a there's a couple like one question that we have to figure out is like uh you know how do we optimize the, these routes and how do we sort of like make routes that work for people that's kind of like a technocratic question almost but there's also this question of like how do we rebuild people's trust in this public service because it's been failing people for so long and people are angry and I don't know it's heartbreaking to watch this public service just like disintegrate before our eyes um in ways that i don't like i don't i'm not sure i can recover from because people are just so angry they can't rely on it they don't trust it 
Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm interested in seeing how the on-demand thing works. It looks to me like it's a, it's like a like this is it's just a way of sort of um, covering up all the cuts that they have to make right now because of the the driver issues that they're having. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's like something that the city has to figure out. Oh, sorry, that the council has to figure out is how to broker some sort of uh, deal or like how to repair the relationship between the city and transit drivers because you know, yeah the city says like there's this labor shortage and that's what's causing the the um the cuts and the, the the transit union says well the city has just made such a toxic work environment that people are leaving um i honestly i don't know which one of those is true i mm-hmm. imagine it's probably something in the middle um but whatever it is there's like something's got to be done to to address it because Right. And you bring up a few things there about driver shortage definitely is one main one, but like, do you feel like going back to hub and loop system is any sort of, is that really a a main issue or not? Is that that a solution? I I don't think it is. I I think that a grid system with enough frequency to make it work would be better. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, if you remember when, when council endorsed the, 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 the new routes, the report that, presented the idea to them, said, these new routes are like the best routes or like, you know, an improvement. Um, but they'll only work if you fund transit enough that we can like run buses really frequently on them so that mm-hmm. the connections aren't 20 minutes long or you don't, like, you can kind of like reliably just go down to, to George Street or Lansdowne Street and expect the bus to come. Um, and counts, I think council kind of like really, um, set the system up to failure by endorsing the new routes, but not funding them enough to make them successful. And so I, th- I think the issue isn't the routes. I- I'm sure they could probably be improved, but I think the bigger issue is the frequency on the routes and that's a funding issue. Um, Cause you got to pay for those new buses and you got to pay for those new drivers and presumably make sure that the drivers like their jobs so that they stay. Right. Um, and like, it'd be nice. I think if, uh, because, you know, most other main places in Ontario, I know, have this, like, at least like a Uber-like app for the transit system. Like, I know yeah, uh, where Durham, they've had that for years. Of course, the TTC, you know, tells you the bus is five minutes away and it's that sort of thing. Certainly mm-hmm. make things easier for the um, uh, riders. Now, did, lo- did all this come because of, like, COVID 2020? Riders dropped, then the cuts, or was this an issue like before then? No, they were redoing the routes before then mm-hmm. um, because I think they kind of realized rightly that the hub and spoke model is not the most efficient one. Um, so they were already working on new routes before COVID happened, um, and I think they accelerated that switch out of a con- you know early on in the pandemic out of a concern throughout the crowding at the station. Um, which is funny because we've learned since then that like being outside really isn't much of an issue. So I don't think that the transit station was that risky of a place. The buses themselves, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, that's funny to think about. Um, but, you know, for the people, so I should say I don't ride the bus much. I'm like more of a cyclist and more of a walker. I drive mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, and so for like for people that used to have a route on the hub and spoke model that like they were familiar with and worked for them, who now are just like dealing with this dysfunctional system. Um, you know, I'm really sympathetic for those people who like want their old roots back because that's what worked for them. Um, 
And I, I'm sympathetic to the argument that like, if we're not going to fix this system, if we're not going to fund it well enough, if we're not going to like retain drivers to make this system work, um, maybe we should just like give up and go back to the system that worked. People know from experience at least worked for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I understand why people that use that ride the bus are like advocating for the return of the hub and spoke model, because I'm sure they know from experience that it works better for them. Right. Um, right. And uh, one other thing on this now, I'm kind of astounded. Is that like 50 cancellations today? Wow. To Trent. That's uh that's that's quite astounding for something that's not, you know, this is not like King Street in Toronto where they're coming every five minutes. So, yeah, I know. Yeah, um, so, but, um, there is always, I think, that kind of, um, it shouldn't really be a conflict, but a bit of it, like, are the buses there to be taking us to Trent and Fleming or, you know, but also maybe forgetting about the elderly and the disabled who more, not everyone, but a lot of them like kind of in a downtown kind of sort of area. Or like, you know, there's that sort of compromise they have to come to of servicing the students, but it not being only for the students sort of thing. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't know sort of what percentage of the budget funds funded the Trent, the old Trent Express and all that. Um, but I know that the TCSA paid the city for it. Right. And so I think that if the TCSA wants to pay the city for Trent specific transit, um, let them pay the city for that service, right? Um, and then let's, you know, build a transit system around that that works for everyone else and Peterborough citizens can pay for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like, I think that, I, I, uh, I think that that argument was taken a little bit too far. I think that trans students deserve and funding students deserve express service if um, if their student governments are going to come together and pay for it, which I think they were. Um, yeah. yeah, so I don't know. Um, so this is some some other miscellaneous kind of issues, a few over the place here. But uh, I know you don't you're not deeply in into this issue. But yeah, Leal's six months. He's promising he's going to negotiate with Kevin Monaghan for sufficient lands for economic and residential development. Yeah. So I kind of, I, I guess I get why, where he's coming from and that we'd need more housing in that, but he kind of, he was not the only one sort of saying this too. He might have been the only one who specifically said this six month thing, but that a lot of politicians still think our, uh, our problems are going to be solved by building more industrial plants of some sort. Yeah. Yeah, and so what I what I find so interesting about this issue because it, it it was one of the other like big issues in the election campaign, but it like it has such a different like history or like evolution. It's like you know homelessness was a big issue in this campaign, and the reason was because mm-hmm. we see it in our community and everyone's distressed about it, mm-hmm. or some people are distressed, some people are just angry. I don't know. Everyone's like emotionally invested in that issue, and that's why it's an issue. Same with transit. Like the transit system sucks citizens are angry they want something better and so like there's this like movement from citizen concerns to election issues and this Kevin Monaghan thing is so funny because like I don't know do you know anyone in your circle of friends who for for whom the issue of this annexation is like really emotionally salient to them no no not one 
foot in your shoe. It's like, yeah. I don't know, some issues are like kind of complicated and wonky and that's why people don't get passionate about them. But I just find it interesting. Like who decides that this is else, that this is an election issue. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so yeah, I don't know. I think the, uh, you know, people on economic development is, you know, repeatedly saying to council, we have all these expressions of interests from employers that want to locate here, but can't locate here because they don't have the land. And if we have this land in the, you know, Southwest corner of the city, they could come and they never say who these employers are. And I understand that they probably have some privacy reasons for not disclosing that, but it really leaves citizens in the dark about like, well, are these really employers that are going to like contribute to a community in a positive way? Are these the kind of employers that we want to have in Peterborough? Because if it's an Amazon warehouse, like, yeah, it might make money for Amazon and, you know, a few senior managers at that plant, but it's actually not going to improve the lives of Peterborough citizens that much. And I'm sure Amazon will figure out how to avoid paying taxes to the city of Peterborough too. So like without knowing what kinds of employers these are, I mean, I can't, I don't know. I can't evaluate whether this is something that the city really needs or not. And then as for housing, um, I don't think we need the city's own sort of, um, um, assessment of like the, the, what is it called? The greenfield, greenfield mm-hmm. lands in the yep. city like sufficient. I don't know if the province that the, discerns this or the city. I forget. Well, the province has control over it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, like you've got enough land inside city boundaries to house all the people that you need to house over the next 20 or 30 years, which suggests that you don't need to annex new land, um, mm-hmm. for the, for the purpose of, of, of housing. Maybe industrial land is different. Um, and I just, there's a funny article. You can't find it on the examiner website because it's so old, but it's on like the old like press reader or like, you know, when you okay. look at the archives from like 20 years ago mm-hmm. of like city council debating whether there's like development on the west side of town on like just outside of town and Kevin Monaghan. Okay. And it was, is it Brookfield or what's the name of that developer? Oh, right. Brook. Yeah. I think Brookfield. Yes. Yeah. That, and they own all this land, right? Mm-hmm. And they, like, they own it because they want to build houses on it. And I just, mm-hmm. I feel like I can't think about this issue without trying to figure out like where that power is being expressed in, like in making this an, elect- uh, an election issue. Yeah, there's a lot nice. of money being made by expending the, for those people by expanding the boundaries of the city. Yeah. They're, yeah. And that's, that's where it can get a bit dark, but uh, I guess I maybe ask your prediction on a few things. Um, do you see, cause it's, this is, I know this has been an issue since the beginning of time almost. There's only other one issue I can think of that's gone on longer and I'll mention that one later, but do you see the parkway being added onto or not? Leal has kind of wavered on this. I don't think so. Okay. Other, well, like, so the, 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 or, the order for the environmental assessment, and this is from like the, the liberal provincial government. So I'm sure that the new provincial government would sort of think differently about it was, said that you can't build any part of the parkway without doing an environmental assessment for the whole corridor, uh, which shut down the idea of like building it, I think like just the piece after medical drive. Or I don't know. I don't know. I, I need to look at a map to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that there are people that are like, would be pretty keen to build parts of it and maybe not the part over the park. Um, but you know, it's just, the park is a big part of the issue. 
Um, but it's just like, it's just old fashioned urban planning. And I, I don't know. I don't see it happening, but you never know. Okay. It's expensive as hell, right? Like, yes. So I don't know. Yeah. You, you could argue we have enough road development at the moment anyway, but, um, and okay, here's another one. Is it this one maybe is a little bit of an easier bet to make, but is it safe to say we'll see increased funding for the police? Um, like, uh, Leo said he wants, I think, 15 more officers hired. Um, I think that there would, there's definitely like political appetite on council to include, like, to staff up the police. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to say what like what will happen when it's time to like look at the budget in January though and actually like think about what that means for property taxes. Right. Well, here's kind of like a side transit issue, but it it does keep being brought up, and I think this issue goes back to the antiquities. It seems um, there's I've heard even though I it, I don't know where municipal has voice on this, but this uh, I've heard them discuss this Via High Express being done yeah. with Peterborough. You know, from, I don't know, Toronto to Quebec City or whatever, and Peterborough's a stop. And this possible express, even though I think pretty sure this is under Metro Links, an express between Peterborough and Bowmanville. Yeah. You think Sweet. that's just municipal pol- politicians talking about something they don't really have any say over anyway. And, you know, it's probably best they just don't say anything about it. Or do you really see there seem being some weight there? <laughs> Uh, I think there's some weight there, but yeah, I think, you know, municipal politics doesn't, won't have much sway on it. I think, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, I don't know, I think it's just a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I think that like all good ideas, it's going to happen, but way slower than it should. Okay. Now I know you're, not, this is another one I need to turn to you too. And I saw, I saw it being asked a lot on your, uh, candidates profiles so mm. I, I don't really know this with this is a cycling issue what is the cycling master plan exactly oh i see why we don't have brett on this call okay the kind of like transit transportation issues um i don't know it's just a plan that the city developed to sketch out sort of where to build bike facilities over the next 20 years um and how to achieve you know a shift in in people's habits from driving to cycling um, and it sort of lays out different uh, places where bike lanes and bike infrastructure can be built. And it's, I think that when it was endorsed, it was endorsed along with a dollar figure where council committed spending, I think, one and a half million a year. Is that right? Do you know? Yeah, I think it's something like that. Yeah, I saw. On yeah. bike infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I'm very interested to see whether the council follows through on that. Some fine print on that plan. I mean, these plans aren't binding. So it's like, I mean, looking at the flat fine print is kind of interesting, but it doesn't really matter because council can just do it once. But I'm interested, like a lot of the times the way council builds bike infrastructure, and I'm kind of using quotation maps there, is like, oh, we've got to repave this street mm-hmm. as we repave the street for the sake of the cars. Yeah, we can throw a bike lane on the side. You know, we can. Yes spend an extra two hours painting a bike lane and that sort of bike infrastructure. And then maybe we can say that we spent a bunch of money on bike infrastructure when really they were just repaving a road for cars. So it'll be interesting to see whether how that breaks out, like, and whether there's dedicated cycling specific infrastructure that gets built to the tune of $1.5 million a year. And if I can, the there's one cycling project that I just, 
I don't, I think it's like, to me, it's like the most obvious cycling infrastructure project that the city needs to build next, which is finishing that <laughs> trail. Mm-hmm. So there's that nice trail behind Lansdowne Place. The city has planned for a long time to extend it all the way to almost downtown. And like, there's an old rail corridor that can be used. People still, people walk on it now. It's a gravel path. And, you know, they, yes. they got some money to do the connection like two or three years ago. It all ended up being more expensive than they thought. And so they only built, I think, two blocks of it. So you're like going along this gravel bumpy path and then you get two blocks of like beautiful biking infrastructure and then you're thrown back onto the, like the bumpy gravel path. Yes. Uh, and it's just like, come just finish it. You don't, this is where I get so angry with all the plans and all the consultant reports and mm-hmm. you don't need these plans to like identify some of these projects that are just like clearly the next things to do. And so for the past four or five years, it's been in the capital budget, but at budget time, the capital budget says we're not recommending funding this because just like for budgetary constraints, like we can't afford it. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure that in January we're going to see the draft budget and it's going to say, let's push this back another year for budgetary reasons. Um, and it's just, I mean, I, I think it's just political cowardice to not, to not fund it and just like build the damn bike lane. Right. Okay. Well, I hear your frustration there. So I maybe don't need to ask this, but I was going to add as an add on. How do you find, since you say you do it a lot, how do you find cycling around the city generally, like in a safety sense and those things like that? Just So I am a pretty able bodied person. I feel pretty safe on the streets. I think for me, my, I don't feel unsafe because of infrastructure. I feel unsafe because of driver behavior that's like getting worse. Um, and I, I guess I get like if cycling infrastructure was better, I could be separated from that dangerous driving that I'm seeing. But like that shouldn't be the solution, right? People should just drive safer. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, for me, I would feel safer cycling if the like the rules of the road were enforced a little bit better and if people followed those rules. So if people stopped at stop signs, if people didn't speed, if people like gave cyclists space, that would make me feel safer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm pretty comfortable cycling on a road with cars without a bike lane. I just like take up space if I need to. But I know that like lots of people aren't, right? And so I think we should be building cycling infrastructure for those folks. Um, and every once in a while, I just like, there's this little parts of like, you know, like you always sort of travel the same routes through town. And so there are a couple like places like uh, the west side of Park Hill Road, where I'm mm-hmm. always like trying to get from Inverley Park across to the Rotary Trail, and there's just no good way. And I, that's actually a road I don't feel comfortable on, so I cycle on the sidewalk. And there's no like ramps for me to get to it. So there's there's a lot oh, of places yeah. like that. I think of like the Lansdowne Street Bridge too is pretty tricky. So there are little places, and that's like a connectivity problem where the cycling lanes and cycling infrastructures just don't all connect to each other yet. Yeah, no, yeah, I can hear you definitely, but turning it more to like uh, Peterborough Currents itself, um, like uh, I was reading back, I think this was way back to May, where um, you and Aisha were like talking about like you needed uh, like a sort of survival plan because yeah, it's very difficult running something like Peterborough Currents in a limited population like Peterborough. Mm-hmm. Um, and which I believe, you know, has more local news than other spots, but like, even if Peterborough was five times bigger, this would be a, a difficult thing to be doing. 
Um, and like now that we're like um, seven months later or six, at least six, half a year later, um, yeah. I think one thing you were mentioning is like grants or advertising or sponsorships. Is that sort of uh, like what you've still been looking at? Yeah, we really need to do another update for our readers because that, yeah, that was kind of the last time we gave people a look at our finances. Um, so when we did that about six months ago, there was a, there was a big response. I think we got like 40 or 50 people signed up mm-hmm. um, to, to support us. And we got, I think the mo- the highest, we hit our highest sort of number of supporters ever in that month. And it was 185. Since then, mm-hmm. it's kind of been trickling down. I think we've got about 170 people supporting us right now. Um, it's, we're running at a little bit of a, we haven't got any grants since then. So we're still, but like we scaled everything back. And we're operating at a deficit right now. I'm not working at Peterborough Currents. I'm, I just kind of like own it and kind of support mm-hmm. where I can, but I'm not, I have a different full-time job now. Um, we can pay Brett to do 15 hours a week to report, and we can pay Aisha 15 hours a week to kind of support Brett and run the business. Okay. Um, that and, and that is like, that's a money-losing operation currently. Um, we're exploring advertisements. We're going to get an update on our website. I think in like a couple of weeks, that's going to make advertising possible. Um, that's something we're going to explore. We're exploring partnering with local organizations where they sponsor um, us to to create journalism, and that would be like. So we're actually we're we're trying this out right now with GreenUp. GreenUp did an event about a week ago where they were trying to kind of foster some dialogue around reimagining how parking lots can be used as community spaces. Um, and they sponsored us to write some stories exploring that idea. And we're still, we're still approaching that journalism as like an independent, like independently, like we're deciding what to write and we're deciding what's important. And, um, Brett's doing all the research and the writing independently. Um, but it's, I think it's a good example of like, this is something that Green Up wants. This is a conversation that Green Up wants to spur in the community. Mm-hmm. I think they got some funding from the federal government to, to do this. Um, and we decided that like, oh, and this is also something that we know our readers would be interested in. And so we can serve our readers' interests and we can serve Green Up's interests. They're really kind of complementary at the same time. Um, and so, and Green Up is supporting that financially. So that it's kind of paid for. So we're going to kind of keep exploring that model. Um, we're always going to put our readers' interests first. So we're always going to evaluate those proposals, being like, is this in the interests of our readers? Are they going to get value from this and does it serve them? Um, and if the answer is no, then we just won't do it. But if the answer is yes, and we can also like make some money by partnering with the community organization, mm-hmm. I think that's one, another, just, it's just another revenue stream. We're going to, we're still always going to rely on reader support and uh, we need to grow that like 170 supporters. It's funny. It feels like so many to me, some, like sometimes, because it's just like, it's incredible. There's 170 people in the community that are giving us money every month and it's really humbling and it makes me really proud. Um, but we also need way more. So that's, that's still going to be part of it. Um, right. We've, we've, we've submitted some grant applications that we're hoping to hear back from about soon. Um, but if I can, I take like two minutes to voice my frustration at the, like how the federal government is supporting journalism. Absolutely. Okay, so I don't, I don't know if you've been following Bill C eighteen. Uh, sort of. It's been meant. It's come up with some organizations I've been involved with, and I've heard people criticize it. Yes. Yeah. So this is 
a bill that would force Google and Facebook to pay publishers every time um, a link to their story is shared on the platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the parts of this bill that I find frustrating is that it allows publishers to s- negotiate deals secretly with Google and Facebook mm-hmm. on how that, like, um, to sort of like get out of that process. Um, and so, or like Google and Facebook, Google and Facebook can pay for those links, you know, by the link or whatever, or they can sort of negotiate these deals with publishers and these deals are completely secret. And, you know, some of the other ways that the federal government is supporting publishers right now is like kind of secretive and like the federal government won't say what publishers they're giving money to and what publishers they're not, um, which is not great for public trust. And I can tell you that Peter Burkerns isn't getting any of that money. Um, but I know that, um, well, actually, I, I'm not, I'd have to, I actually don't know if the toy star, the company that owns Peter Examiner is getting that money, but I would presume that they would be. Um, and I don't know, I just, throughout this process, the big chains that have, either, like, that have failed to adapt over the past 20 years as the internet has changed, um, journalism, are the ones benefiting from the from the federal government's uh, journalist journalism support, mm-hmm. and there's really not a lot for independent publishers like Peter Currents, um, mainly because you to be eligible to get federal support, you have to have at least two full time employees that aren't owners in the company, which sounds uh, small, but like Peter Currents is a long uh, way from having two full-time employees that aren't Aisha and I. <laughs> yeah, that's that's um, a lot for Peterborough Currents. Yeah, that's a lot for anything in Peterborough, yes. Yeah, so. and, yeah. and like a lot of the innovation that's happening in journalism is coming from little startups like Peterborough Currents. Um, there's mm-hmm. so many of them across the country. And, you know, most of them start with one or two people that start a business and like take a risk and try to work hard to, to serve their community with journalism. And they're just not eligible for the support. And the support is just like going to reinforce the big chain companies that got us into this mess. It's just frustrating. If if I go by, like, I don't know anything myself, but if I go by uh, when I've listened to Jesse Brown of Canada Land, uh, he would affirm that yep, corporations like Torstar are getting money out of this. Well, Canada Land itself has done really well with membership. Like you said, you have, uh, it definitely is still relied on ND Mattress to a point too as well. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. um, so something just to end on a bright note, what do you feel so far? Like how long have you been in operation now, Peterborough Currents? Uh, two and a half. So it depends. Um, Aisha and I started Peterborough Currents, I think like four or five years ago as like okay. a volunteer podcast. We did like a podcast every month or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was two and a half years ago, like basically right at the beginning of COVID, um, where we decided to kind of really commit to it and try to make it something more sustainable, something that had a bigger impact and bigger visibility in the community and make it into a business. Um, so that mm-hmm. in order to sort of like make it sustainable. Um, so yeah, two and a half years since it's actually been a, a real going concern. Okay. And what do you feel? Both you and Aisha would sort of say are your biggest accomplishments you've done, or at least, or biggest. I don't know. Um, I would just kind of go, go back to certain certain articles we published. Um, mm-hmm. The Creek articles I wrote, I'm really proud of. The yeah. 
injection site timeline that Brett, Aisha, and I worked together on. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really proud of. A lot of the coverage of Peterborough House and like Peterborough Housing that I've done um, is just like it's not being covered anywhere else. Um, and so that's an example of like we wouldn't examine a road about the, the lawsuit after we covered it, but I mm-hmm. don't think they knew about it until we covered it. So that's an example of just like news that Peterborough wouldn't know about if it wasn't for us. Peterborough wouldn't know that PHC is selling those houses in the South End um, out from under tenants. Um, if we didn't cover that, um, I think people would like to, yeah, just not have as good a sense of that redevelopment project if we went for our coverage. Oh, and then, and then, uh, the sort of this oil spill thing that's happening in Jackson Creek. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. It, I, I think if it weren't for the coverage that we did on that, the public sort of line being given by the city would still be there's oil seeping into the creek and it, it's, a, it's a little lake and we don't know where it's coming from. Um, but we knew that wasn't true because we had done some uh, freedom of information requests to get some documents that showed that they did know where it was coming from. It was coming from city-owned properties right next to the creek. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the cities, you know, it responded to us and acknowledged that, yes, that is probably the likely source of the spill. Um, just a couple of days after they were saying they didn't know where the spill was coming from. Um and so, yeah, I think that the, the the public line now is that it's coming from this city-owned site. And I think if we want to complete about occurrence, the public line would be, we don't know where it's coming from. And so, you know, just little things like that uh, make me proud. Um, yeah, the, the, I, I got to say that the job comes with a lot of uh, a lot of doubt and anxiety and, and, and stress, too. And so... And I think it's mostly just like I see a lot of things in the community that I wish we had the resources to cover. Um, and we don't. And then, and like, I feel that because I'm, I'm working another job right now and I really like yeah. the other job I'm working. Uh, it's like, it's, it's kind of dealing with a lot of the same issues and yeah, right. it's adjacent in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, as you know, if we had more money, I think we'd be able to do a lot more, but it's, it's hard to sort of, it's hard to like chase the money and do the journalism at the same time. Mm-hmm. I know Aisha feels that way too. Um, right. So yeah, I don't know. I think that I, I'm, I don't know what the future is for the company. I don't know how much we'll be able to grow, but I know that we've, we've done good work up till now. And I think there's going to be a role for Peterborough Currents in Peterborough for a long time to come. Um, no matter how the sort of business side of it lands. Um, there'll be something for us to do. Whether it's big or small, I don't know, but it'll it'll keep going. Well, yeah, I, especially on these sort of things you're most proud of, like uh, it's just basically investigative journalism, which uh, not an easy thing to do. But um, well, anyway, well, thank you. Thank you very much for that. I hope that wasn't too exhausting, but uh, mm-hmm. I think that helps helps everyone kind of get in a sense of what we have ahead the next year. Well, congratulations if you've made it this far with me. You're not one of those people with a limited attention span. And also that interview went a lot further than I thought it would. I'll admit that interview is very localized in theme. And if you're not from Peterborough, it'd be hard. Perhaps you'd understand some of it. But I suggest you look at the show notes. I tried to go in-depth on them and give you some references. And also I suggest, again, you check out Peterborough Currents, peterboroughcurrents.ca. I'll see you next time on Corner of Hunter and George.